She spent 20 years as a revenue officer at the IRS. Then she went into union work, serving for 14 years as president of a local in Wisconsin. Now she's the new national president of the National Treasury Employees Union. Doreen Greenwald joins me now in studio. Ms. Greenwald, good to have you with us. Thank you. Great to be here. All right. So IRS, you are central to what got NTEU started in the first place, which was basically IRS people. What motivated you to kind of switch from the revenue officer career to union work? Well, I worked for the IRS for overall for 35 years, 20 of which was as a revenue officer. And throughout all of the jobs I had at the IRS, NTEU in the workplace was evident to me that it helped things work smoothly. It helped address employees' issues early on so they didn't get out of whack. It allowed employees to have a voice in their workplace and make sure that they could have a say in how things changed. Asking people who do the work is the best way to make changes in a workplace and make sure they're working as efficiently as possible. And that's what introduced me to the National Treasury Employees Union. Interesting. So did you find that the IRS would ask the people doing the job about change and the best way to do things because they had to, because of the NTEU in place? Or do you feel like that's what they really thought was a good practice also? No, I would say without NTU in place, those kind of questions wouldn't be asked of the frontline workforce. Having a contract and having procedures in place that allow employees that voice and making them have a voice at the table in key decisions that impact their work lives makes a huge difference. And that doesn't happen without a union in the workplace. And the IRS has always been decentralized. They used to have these large, I guess they still do to some extent, processing centers where all that paper got handled. And so there must have been some variation in general employee treatment and approaches from place to place. Maybe the union presence helped keep things a little bit more uniform, perhaps. I would agree with that. Obviously, IRS is a huge operation. It does have submission processing centers. It has service centers. And I worked in a field office. And so each one of those is a different work environment. And each place NTU has a a voice in those workplaces. For example, I worked in a field office where revenue officers and revenue agents, people who actually went out in the field, did audits and did collections, had issues that were involved about work-life balance, about making sure you were safe in the workplace. And so those are things where NTU would step up. And there's different issues in a submission processing site, all of which NTU has people on the ground working with frontline employees to address those issues. And I want to get a little bit more of your own biography. 35 years is a long time for the IRS. That's almost a quarter of the time it's even existed in some sense. And you know, what got you into that work in the first place, and what were the highlights? Well, I think for most people that work for the federal government, it's something you're not sure about when you enter. I was excited. I took a civil service test. At the time, I thought, oh, I'll check out the government and see until I find something different. And then when I became a civil servant and took an oath to the Constitution and the mission of the service, I was proud of the work I did, and I really loved helping America's taxpayers. You know, the IRS gets a bad rap of, you know, having to collect taxes. Nobody likes to pay taxes. But I will tell you, the people who work for the IRS are proud of what they do, and I loved it. And so what started out to be a one- or two-year career turned into 35 years in a blink of an eye. I met great people along the way and really was able to serve and give back to the community, which gave me great pride. And sometimes the IRS is not popular with certain elements of the public. Was that ever really an important issue? It's always an important issue. As I said, you know, being a revenue officer, my job was to collect taxes and returns. 
a big part of that is education. People are really good at what they do, but they don't always understand the tax laws, and they can be quite complex. People also need to realize those tax laws are passed by Congress, not by the IRS. So we're doing a job that Congress sets us out to do. So in that realm, yes, you run into people who aren't happy with some of the work that you have to do. But my job was to educate them and to help them to fulfill their requirements. And so for the most part, I would say people were very cooperative. But we always had tools to deal with those who chose to not be cooperative. Sure. We're speaking with Doreen Greenwald. She's national president now of the National Treasury Employees Union. And what are your general goals for NTEU? My general goals are to obviously grow our union. We have a very strong union and 35 federal agencies. We have a new generation coming on board in the federal government, and I want people to be proud of being federal servants once again and proud of their union. And so I'm going to look to expand and educate people about the role of a union in the federal government and how important it is to federal employees. And what have you found with some of the young people maybe coming in? How receptive do they arrive at, say, the IRS or one of the other 35 agencies? Do they tend to be receptive to this idea, or is it something that they feel is passe? Actually, I think they're very receptive. What we're finding is a new generation that hasn't been exposed to unions in the past. And so this gives them an opportunity. Also, they're the voice of the workforce on the front lines where they're not getting the support they need from management. And so NTU is there for them to help them, guide them and lift them up and so that they're successful in their career. And, you know, IRS management, management in general, gets dinged by line employees. That's kind of as old as human history. But in your experience, what makes a good manager from your standpoint and, you know, what makes someone good for the union that they have a counterpart that is sympathetic, maybe not sympathetic, but empathetic and understands why the union is there? That's one of the myths of unions is it's anti-management. And I will tell you, we're not anti-management. We're anti-bad manager. And so what I would say is you want a good manager who communicates well with their employees, that's there to address their needs, help them. If they need additional training, identify that, provide it for them. That's what you want in a manager is to be there and be supportive of you. Unfortunately, not all managers have good skills in communicating. They may be good at the work they did, but managing is a different set of skills. And so we try to work with managers to make sure they have the skills they need and to make sure they have the training they need to be better managers to help employees. And the challenge, I guess, at some level, is that employee membership in the union that happens to represent an agency, there's no such thing as a closed shop in the federal government. So you have to always be convincing people to stay in and pay their dues, even though they know they're benefiting from what the union may do if they're not a member. How do you meet that challenge? It is a challenge because, as you said, you know, employees have the right to join a union or not join a union in the federal government, but they all benefit from the work that the union does. And so that's part of my role and part of all of our leaders' roles across the country is educating people about all the things that union dues pay for, such as our contracts and having people on the Hill to fight for them and do all of the things necessary to provide a better workplace for them. That doesn't come for free. And so we want to have as many people involved and their voices as part of our actions going forward. And so that's an ongoing discussion that we have with the workforce. And what kinds of signals are you getting from the current regime at IRS? We have a very good relationship with the uh, current regime at IRS. I don't know that I'd call them a regime, but the commissioner, Danny Werfel, has been a very positive influence. He understands 
that the changes needed at the IRS to deliver for taxpayers starts with the employees of the IRS. And so he has a huge undertaking now that they receive funding from the Inflation Reduction Act to really help them rebuild the IRS. Because for over a decade, the IRS has been gutted by budget cuts. And so while the complexity of taxes has grown and the base in which IRS employees must service taxpayers has grown, the workforce has been diminished. And so it's on his task to bring on new employees, train them so that they can provide the services that Americans deserve. And in advocating before Congress, which the federal employee unions do and are not shy about that, have you ever wanted to say to whatever the committee is or several committees, clean up that darn tax code? That's the fundamental problem that seems to plague almost everyone that deals with taxes in the United States is the length and complexity and subtlety of something that ought to be really simple. Well, from a union standpoint, we don't get involved in the policy of government. So if Congress doesn't like the tax code or feels it's too complex for taxpayers, it's their job to clean it up. Absolutely. But what I will say is we tell Congress is if you want us to service taxpayers, and that is our mission, you have to fund us to do that. And that's been kind of a problem Because you want service, but you don't want to pay for it, and you can't get it for free. And in the day-to-day workings with IRS local officials and local managers, and maybe at the national level too, what are the types of issues that tend to come up the most for the union and management to talk about? So over the last decade or so, with the cutting of budgets, IRS employees, there's just been so much that they've been asked to do without the resources and supplies. And so now that this funding is there, we want to make sure that the IRS uses it appropriately and efficiently and that it supports the employees they're bringing on and hiring and creates a system that they can attract and retain employees going forward. Because it costs a lot of money to train employees, and it takes a good two to three years before somebody is trained to do their job efficiently. And so when you have employees who are not, their needs aren't being met in training is a big issue, and having good managers, and that involves training the managers, you see a high attrition rate. And so we want to work through that and make sure that employees' needs are met so they stay and that they do a good job for the American people. Doreen Greenwald is the national president of the National Treasury Employees Union. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported 
and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to it probably won't so by building programs including leadership development programs including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs that's what's really key for I think for our agency and particularly me in this role um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, But then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You You have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.